Betrayal is one of the most devastating forms of pain that can be inflicted upon a human being. And there's all kinds of forms of betrayal, whether it's a stab in the back from a close friend or it's adultery in marriage or it's being sabotaged by a business associate or even finding out that somebody that you've ministered with in the church has turned against you. Whatever the circumstances are, betrayal is always painful and it's always heartbreaking. I can testify to this personally. I know many of you can as well. There are times when betrayal hurts so badly that you feel it all the way down to your bones. And you wake up every morning wondering if your soul will ever recover from it. And so much so, and I've experienced this, maybe you have as well, that the next time you're challenged to open your heart to a a new person, you hesitate wondering if it's worth the risk. And this is one of the many examples we could point to in the Bible where it doesn't pull any punches. The Bible does not try to minimize or brush aside the woundedness that takes place when a friend becomes an enemy. In fact, God has given us in his word multiple examples of human beings' propensity to betray each other. And in the lives of some of his most beloved servants, David, for example, a few months ago, we looked uh, in John 13 and we saw how Jesus predicted his betrayal. And he pointed to, he quoted from David's lament in Psalm 41 that says this, even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Now, David said that in Psalm 41, but then, of course, Judas took the morsel of bread from Jesus' hand and fulfilled that prophecy. That's just one example from David's life. He gets more explicit in Psalm 55. Listen, David says, It is not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. Let me say that again. It's not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you, David says, a man who is my peer and my companion and good friend. We used to have close fellowship, he laments. We walked with the crowd together into the house of God. So betrayal is devastating. One who I spent time with, someone who I fellowshiped with, somebody who I studied and prayed with, somebody who I walked into the church beside, somebody I stood next to and praised the Lord together. I can handle an enemy who tries to hurt me, but a friend and a brother, the closer the relationship, the deeper the betrayal. So this morning, we've come to that point in the story, the betrayal of Judas, the final section of John's gospel These last four chapters describe the passion of God the Son. We're going to cover his arrest in the garden, his trial, first of all, before the high priest and then before the Roman governor. Of course, the scourging, the crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, and finally, the glorious appearances to his friends. So listen, church family, we've been in this Gospel of John for a long time now, right? Uh, And you guys have been patient for 17 chapters, but the best is coming now. The best part of the story is ahead of us as we look forward just a few weeks from now to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And those are the two most important worship dates on our calendar. Everything that we hold sacred, that we hold precious as Christians, the very foundation of our faith, in fact, is found in what we're going to read over the next few chapters. So I want to implore you, if you're tired, if you're worn out by life, that this is a season of anticipation where our faith should be the most vibrant it is at 
more than any other time of the year as we look forward and count down towards Easter Sunday. Amen? Okay, so let's enter into this final section. The hour has finally come. All the way back in chapter 2. Do you remember the, it's been a long time, the wedding feast in the city of Cana? All the way back then in chapter 2, Jesus talked about this thing, his hour. The hour where he would sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But up to this point, and, and we've seen this over and over again, Jesus has had many threats against his life, but nobody has yet physically grabbed onto him. Have you noticed that? Many threats, but nobody had physically taken hold of him. In fact, how many times do we see in the Gospels where Jesus almost miraculously slips away from a crowd he's trying to grab him? And we talked about there seems to be a supernatural aspect to that, the way he is able to just sort of disappear and escape the clutches of wicked men. And we know the reason why he was able to do that, because his hour hadn't yet come. And because God, the Father in heaven, and God, the Son on earth, were sovereign and in control of all the events taking place on the ground, Jesus wasn't going to be arrested until the precise moment that God caused that to happen. And I say that caused. God is in control of this whole thing. And now as we come to John 18, that hour has arrived. So grab your Bibles. Let's go there. John chapter 18. We're looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. John 18, 1 through 11, as you turn there, let me give you a couple of things to consider as we uh, enter into this last section and into this chapter. First of all, this is a very historical section, and you know what that means, right? Thank you. <laughs> Jesse's on top of it. It's going to mean maps and photos, both today and in the coming weeks. It just has to happen. Because when you get to historical narrative like this, you want to set that scene. You want to feel it. You want to see it. And I don't know about you, I'm a visual learner, so we'll look at some maps and some, some photos. Second, there's two things that stand out in our text for this morning, these 11 verses. And I thought I'd just give them to you up front so that you can see them as we go along. Number one, and most prominently in this section, we're going to see how Jesus, even though he's the one being arrested, he is the one who's in control of this entire situation from beginning to end. And by that, I mean the location of his arrest, the timing of it, even the means by which He's taken away. Jesus is in control. Second, you're going to see him shine once again as the great shepherd. He is going to show once again his love, profound love for these 11 men and his protective nature. He is deeply committed to their preservation right up to the very end. All right, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, now what words are we talking about? We just came out of chapter 17, right? The high priestly prayer. So Jesus has been praying for himself, for his guys, and for us as well, expanding this circle of prayer for all disciples across the ages. When he had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So let's set the scene where we've been. These 11 men have, have been with Jesus all evening. Remember, it's Thursday evening in the Passion Week. And they had gathered in this specifically chosen room in the upper part of the city of Jerusalem. And then after the sun had gone down, Jesus washed their feet, remember, to show them what true servanthood looks like. They ate the Passover meal together. And then once the betrayer had left the room, Jesus settled in for a time of teaching. And he uh, talked about uh, 
Uh, he instituted the bread and the cup, although John doesn't cover that part. We know from the synoptics that Jesus instituted commun- what we call communion today. We know that he taught some more. And then at, at one point, and we covered this, Jesus got up and said, guys, it's time for us to go. And they got up and they left that upper room and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem with a particular destination in mind, a particular place that they enjoyed fellowship together many times in the past. Now, at the time they do that, as they get up to leave, it's now late in the evening. Most of the city of Jerusalem is beginning to settle down for the night. But it's interesting, if you'd looked at the Temple Mount at that moment, you would have seen a whole bunch of frantic activity happening around the Temple Mount. More on that in just a second. Jesus was leading his guys towards one of the eastern gates of the city, where they would, they would exit the, the, the city, they would walk north of the Kidron Valley, and head north towards what we call the Mount of Olives. And as we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus continued to teach as they walked together as a group. And then as best we can tell, at some point in that walk, he stopped and he prayed over his friends. That's what we just covered over the last four Sundays. Then they began to walk again. And that's what brings us here to verse one, where it says, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. What that means is, is this group is now beginning to ascend up the slope of the Mount of Olives as they... Uh, come to this place that they enjoyed time with uh, in the past, this place called Gethsemane. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The word just means oil press. This area is known for its thick grove of olive trees. So with that, you know what time it is, right? It's time for maps. So now I, I, I showed you this map uh, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago as we trying to visualize this walk that Jesus led his guys on up to the Garden of Gethsemane. The traditional spot of the upper room is up there. So to the, to the left here, or which is the west, is what we call the upper part of the city of Jerusalem. It slopes down then into the lower city and all the way down into the, what we call the old city, which is the city of David. So if they were up there in the upper room, they're going to come down the slope, cross one of the bridges into the city of David, and likely exit out what we call the water gate or the fountain gate, that blue square you see there. And then they're going to head north up the Kidron Valley, and they're going to head towards the Mount of Olives, which is off here to the east. Uh, if you took that road, you'd end up in Bethany, where we've seen Jesus go many times to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus, about two miles away. But here on this night, they're going to stop there on the, the bottom of the slope of the Mount of Olives, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what does that look like in terms of a more topographical look? This is a great uh, a, a great artist's rendering of what the city would have looked like back then. So you can see more of the topography of the Kidron Valley here. Again, somewhere in the upper city, up here on the west side, coming down, you see the Pool of Siloam down here at the bottom. And then to the, to the right here is the old city of David. They would have exited that gate, gone up the Kidron Valley. You can see how deep that ravine is. And then towards the t- this giant temple mount you see here, and then... Somewhere in that green circle would have been the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's the direction they're heading. So what does that actually look like then in terms of photos? Let me give you a couple of looks. This is what the Kidron Valley looks like today. Um, I think I snapped that picture back in the last time I was there in 2019 before before COVID. Yay. Um, And you see the Kidron Valley there. Uh, You see many of these same olive trees that grow there. You see some some of the tombs. This is very expensive real estate. In Israel, these are some family tombs where some of the most prominent Israelis are buried. Also, there's monumental tombs in this area. You see that strange, strange monument in the middle there? That is the tomb of Absalom, 
the son of David. Also in that area is the tomb of Zechariah and the tomb of King Jehoshaphat. So this area is absolutely filled with history. So that's what the Kidron Valley looks like today. It's not always that green. In the summer, it gets very brown, sort of like where we live. It's either very green based on the rains or very brown based on the heat. That's the Kidron Valley. And then this is, this is, this is sort of the, what the, the Garden of Gethsemane looks like. You see, the, again, these beautiful olive trees. Back there is this, is this, this, uh, this broad uh, cemetery, Jewish cemetery, that is on the Mount of Olives behind it. But that's, that's sort of what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like. I'll leave you one last picture. This is that group in 2019. We're walking through the Garden of Gethsemane in the shadow of the Temple Mount. You see the Dome of the Rock up there. Uh, but that's what it looks like even today. So you can see the, the slope, how, how the Kidron Valley is below, and how then the Temple Mount shoots up. There's a, actually it's quite an elevation change as you go up to the Temple Mount. Anyway, so there's some, just some images to sort of get you ready. And if you're going to Israel with us in November, you will get to experience all of this. It'll be a great time. Now, there's an interesting detail here in verse 1. When John writes that this group went over the ravine of the Kidron, He's using a word in common usage which refers to going over a stream or over a brook. And there is and there was and is today when the rains come, there is a stream that runs through the Kidron Valley. But here's the interesting note. As we know at Passover, there was this continuous slaughter of the lambs going on up in the Temple Mount, right? Have you ever wondered where all that blood goes as they slaughter those lambs? Well, the answer is it was channeled down the backside of the temple on the east side, and it flowed into that stream in the Kidron Valley. So, so catch the very subtle symbolism that John may be uh, trying to describe to us here as Jesus crosses that stream that night. The question is, would he have looked down and seen this reddish blood flowing underneath his feet and begun to think about what's about to happen to him in the next few hours. Very interesting that, that John uses this word as if he's trying to let us know that Jesus recognized that as he crossed the Kidron Valley. Let's look at verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. He knew where Gethsemane was. He knew it well. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So let's, let's take a look historically and, and look at the array of enemies now that are heading towards Gethsemane on that night. Judas we'll talk about in a second, but let's look at these soldiers. And let's start with that second group. It says officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And that, that makes perfect historical sense. This is the group known as the Temple Guard. And these were Jewish men from the tribe of Levi who had been given the job of policing the grounds of the temple. They were at the beck and call of the Sanhedrin, the members of the this Supreme Court of Israel. So these guys would have been tough soldiers. These guys would have been, been the, the men that had to deal with unruly crowds, especially at the feast times like Passover in the temple courts. But John is the only one of the gospel writers that, talk, that then talks about this cohort that's involved. And what that means is that in addition to the temple guard, an auxiliary unit of Roman soldiers also came to the garden that night. Perhaps they came as a backup measure. First of all, it would have been the temple guard in the front, but perhaps these Roman soldiers came as a backup force. 
And these guys would have come from the Temple Mount as well, from what we call the Antonia Fortress, which uh, you may have seen the pictures. It was on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. I'll give you a, just a quick picture, zooming in. This is the Temple model in Jerusalem. That's why you see those are not giant people. <laughs> that is a model in the city of Jerusalem, which we will visit in November, and it's very, very helpful to get the lay of the land. So that arrow there, see that monstrous structure on the corner of the Temple Mount? That is the Antonia Fortress. Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives us all types of information about it. It was, so it was built by Herod. Herod. Herod the Great comes to power as king of the Jews in 37 BC, and he was such a builder. And, and when you go to Israel, you see his building projects everywhere. He expanded the Temple Mount greatly, but he also expanded the Antonia Fortress. And that was because he was absolutely obsessed with security. That does just, everywhere you go, you see him planning out his escape routes in case he finds himself in trouble. Josephus says the walls itself of this structure were 60 feet high. So think six stories, just the walls. The towers, another 40 feet even above that. So think of a 10-story building, those towers. It housed at least a cohort of Roman soldiers, at least 600 men and probably more. By the way, he had named it. Herod was such a, was such a um, oh, I don't even have a nice word for it. He, uh, he named it the Antonia Fortress because of his Roman benefactor, Mark Antony. He had such a tight relationship with him and, and, and had developed this sort of, hey, do you have my back, Rome? Mark Antony, do you have my back? Because he was obsessed and always worried about his security. But the most important thing about that structure was it had a large private corridor that connected directly to the temple courts. So if there was a dust-up in the temple courts, especially at a feast time, this auxiliary unit of soldiers could rush in there and be on scene within moments. Now, here's why I share all this, because there's an important question that gets raised by John's uh, gospel here. Why did the chief priests think it was necessary to send so many men to arrest one rabbi. Why? If most of the temple guard were sent out, and even a portion of this Roman cohort joined them, scholars have looked at this, and they're pretty unanimous that it would have been hundreds of soldiers. Hundreds that went to Gethsemane that night. All to arrest a man who in the past showed no signs of promoting violence whatsoever. It's pretty wild. So imagine the site now where the disciples were gathered in the garden. This, they look up in this massive parade of torchlights, exits the Temple Mount, and again, you saw the pictures. Gethsemane, you can see the Temple Mount from there. You see this torchlight parade coming towards you, and you know these are professional soldiers with lanterns, with swords, and with clubs. So what did the Sanhedrin know about Jesus that made them so afraid and so cautious about arresting him? I mean, it seems obvious they were planning for the worst. And my guess is they had a few possibilities in mind. First of all, they were afraid of Jesus' popularity. So would it, they thought, well, is it possible that he would have some of his followers, a crowd around him that they would have to fight through? Would he try to resist arrest? Or worse, would he try to escape up into the hills? Very real possibility. Up in the caves and among the trees up on the Mount of Olives. I think that's probably why John mentions lanterns here. They were prepared to possibly have to engage in a manhunt up in those hills. But in my opinion, I think the, if, if we could be a fly on the wall in the inner chambers of the Sanhedrin's meetings, I think the thing that they're most concerned about is this. 
they knew about Jesus' power. They knew he was a miracle worker. They could not deny it. So I think they expected almost anything that night. This is a man that has, this man raised somebody from the dead, right? That was at least the rumor that they had, they had heard. So they expected the worst. And he's popular, right? Very popular with the common, have you ever noticed this? When, when, a, when somebody is popular with the common people, it makes the elites very, very nervous, and that was the case here. And then you couple those truths with the fact that Jesus had shown an amazing ability to slip away whenever he was cornered, and they were not going to underestimate him on this night. So they sent an army to arrest a single rabbi. Now, why? Let's be reminded. Why on earth are they so bent on grabbing Jesus? Well, you might remember that the desire to kill him goes all the way back to John chapter 5. Chapter 5, back to a Sabbath day when Jesus did the, uh, the unthinkable. He healed a man, right? And as we say that, that sounds ridiculous, right? Why would you kill somebody for healing a man? But it was the Sabbath, right? He healed this man by the pool of Bethesda. And then as he spoke to the religious authorities, he spoke in such a way that what they heard was, this man is making himself equal with God. And then things accelerated quickly. In chapter 7, we see the very first time that the Jewish leaders tried to arrest him, but it turned into this humiliating defeat. Do you remember the temple guards were sent out to grab him? But they come back empty-handed, not because they couldn't locate Jesus. No, they found him. But as they listened to him teach, they came back and said, we've never heard anything like this before. They didn't arrest him. And it was humiliating. A chapter later, Jesus' teaching becomes... Uh, becomes more really than the people can bear. He says, before Abraham was born, I am, declaring both his preexistence and using the, the divine name, Yahweh's sacred name. John says at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple. Then in John 9, we read about the frustration that arose once again after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, this time a man who had been born blind, and when the Pharisees confronted him, Jesus flipped the situation on their heads and he said to them, he said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Nobody had ever spoken to the religious authorities in Jerusalem like that. Can you imagine how that must have sent them into a rage? And we see this throughout the Gospels. We see the scribes and the Pharisees fuming over Jesus' words and over his deeds and historically, we know why. He is challenging them at every step in terms of their, their view of authority, their view of power, and their view of empty ritualism. At every step, he's exposing their sin of pride and the, the corruption that they'd engaged in at the expense of the common people. And soon after, he had healed a second man on the Sabbath. Then Jesus claimed publicly, I and the Father are one. And once again, they called for his death and they picked up stones, but the text says he eluded their grasp. And the final straw, of course, was this public raising of Lazarus from the dead. As word of this miracle spreads throughout the land, the level of hatred within the Sanhedrin, it gets so high that not only do they insist we have to kill Jesus, but we have to kill Lazarus as well. They're becoming unhinged. Their, their jealousy and their anger and their rage is getting the best of them. And then Passover comes, right? All of that has happened. There's all this backdrop. Passover comes, and what does Jesus do? He triumphantly rides into Jerusalem 
on the back of a prophesied donkey. And the people, the crowds are shouting messianic sayings at him. You can only imagine the panic and the, the heated conversations taking place in the inner chambers of the Temple Mount. And Jesus, of course, being sovereign over all this, he doesn't let up once he arrives. Early in the week of, of the Passion Week, he walks straight into the power center of the Sanhedrin, right into the temple courts, and he begins to rebuke them. <laughs> Unheard of in Jewish history to do this. What does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Can you imagine these powerful men in the temple complex hearing this rogue rabbi say such things? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel around on sea and land to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Yikes. Woe to you, blind guides. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Can you see why Jesus was a problem? As he said these things in public, in the temple courts, where the Sanhedrin was allegedly in charge. But then, at the height of all this, when the, the fear and the anger and the, the panic are arising, guess what? The chief priests catch a break. A remedy literally falls in their lap. From within Jesus' inner circle, a traitor appears. And for a measly 30 pieces of silver, they're able to negotiate with this man a way for him to turn over his own rabbi and put him into their hands. What a break, right? If you're standing on the outside, you go, wow, that's good luck. God is at work, right? So that's easier said than done. Grabbing Jesus is easier said than done. Now, Matthew tells us that prior to Judas's treachery, the Sanhedrin was already worried about grabbing him in public, already concerned about publicly arresting him, especially at Passover, because Passover was just too volatile. The crowds were too big. There was all this messianic fervor. The timing was not right. The Romans, of course, were in town. Normally, they were in Caesarea on the coast, but now Pontius Pilate is in town. There's more Roman soldiers around. They're on high alert. They would have come to the conclusion, it is best to wait until after the feast to arrest this man. But guess what? Jesus wasn't going to allow that to happen. He was not going to allow that to happen. And this is where we come really to our first big point that comes out of this particular section. The Lord himself was controlling every detail of his own arrest. That, that comes through in the entire passage here. He's in control of the timing. You have to remember, the reason Jesus came to Jerusalem for this last time wasn't just because he wanted to celebrate the Passover. He came to become our Passover. 
He became to become our Passover. So the timing of his death had been established long ago. He would die at Passover. Jesus would see to that. So he would force his adversaries to act in a way that was contrary to their best plans, but perfectly in line with God's plan and God's timing. It reminded me as I was, as I was writing this down this week of Psalm 2. Uh, the elders right now at our meetings were going through the Psalms, and we just recently read Psalm 2. And there's this amazing section in Psalm 2 where the psalmist describes two things, how man schemes and man plans as if they're in control, but how God laughs at them for it. Listen to what it says. It says, why, did the nation, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying to each other, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that interesting? The kings of the world stand and go, we don't need God. We can cast him aside. And then the psalmist says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's what's going on here. Chief, chief priests have a plan. It's not going to happen because God says otherwise. So they're scurrying around trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, but the Lord is executing his sovereign plan step by step. And it all started back in the upper room. I know we've already covered this in John's gospel, but back in the upper room, you remember Jesus took Judas by surprise at the table, didn't he? John 13 says, Jesus became troubled in spirit. And there's this moment of tension at the table. He looks around at his guys and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Silence, right? Just like we just had. I mean, can you imagine this small group of men enjoying this celebration and Jesus drops this bomb? One of you is a traitor. Can you imagine the panic that ran through Judas at that moment? He's been caught. He's been exposed. I think Judas probably had a plan. He was going to try to betray Jesus quietly, subtly, secretly to the authorities, right? And definitely not during the feast. But when he gets exposed at that table, all opportunity for subtlety was lost. Jesus knows. He knows the plan. So that timetable for his betrayal now gets accelerated. And so when Jesus says, you know, here, Judas, here's a reason to leave. I picture Judas bolting for that door because now there's urgency, He's got to get this done, right? The, his opportunity to pull off this betrayal is shrinking. And whether the Jewish relig uh, religious leaders liked it or not, they were now going to have to move against Jesus right away. Their hand was forced. They couldn't wait for the feast to end, right? So they must have thought, listen, we got to move now. We have a traitor. This is our opportunity. We've got to move now, so let's do it right away. Let's do it later at night when the crowds have, have dissipated. And, and let's get this done because we cannot let this man slip away. I doubt very much they were happy with the timing. This is not what they wanted, but they could not waste this opportunity. So you could picture them scrambling the temple guard, right? And then going to the Antonio Fortress and putting them on notice. We need backup. We are going to get a criminal tonight. And this is a very unique man. So they scramble everybody, right? And Judas, of course, knows right where to go. Now, I think it's very possible, I can't prove this, but remember Judas had left Jesus, Jesus up in the upper city, right, at the upper room. It's possible that first they went to the upper city to look for him, and then once they couldn't find him, 
Judah said, I know the next best place because this was Jesus' habit to be in the upper city but then to travel to the Mount of Olives. So he knew the next best place to look. And again, with the Lord being in control of all of these events, that frantic process of gathering the soldiers and searching in the upper city gave Jesus the time that he needed to finish all of his teaching, all of his preparation of his guys. It gave him a chance to pray for his disciples and to pray for us and to get to the Garden of Gethsemane where he had planned all of this to go down. It even gave him time, and John doesn't cover this well-known scene, but, but Matthew does, this what we call the agony in the garden. This happens before, of course, Judas and the soldiers get there. Matthew says, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. But then what did he do? He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And we, we know the story of what transpired there in the garden. Jesus prays to his father. He says, Father, if, if possible, if this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Matthew says that Jesus' soul was grieved to the point of death over this. And Luke says his sweat became like drops of blood as he prayed. And we understand why. What Jesus is facing is beyond what we can even imagine, right? Not just physically dying on a cross. That's bad enough. None of us could, could possibly imagine that pain. But to bear the wrath of mankind's sin upon himself. Of course he's sweating drops of blood. And just as Jesus finishes that precious time of prayer and communion with the Father, and his face is now set towards the cross, that's when Judas and the soldiers begin to arrive, right? Jesus had sovereignly timed and prepared everything for this moment. So he says to Peter, James, and John, get up, get up. Remember they'd fallen asleep twice? It's late in the, it was late in the evening, right? There's been a long day. They're tired. They fell asleep twice. He says, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. God had brought everything to this moment. He had accomplished everything he needed to accomplish that night, and now this moment had come. I think verse 4 affirms this, the sovereignty in, in the way John writes this. He says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. He had chosen Gethsemane because he knew that's where Judas would eventually come. Jesus has no intention of trying to resist arrest, does he? He has no intention of trying to escape he makes it as easy as possible to be found. You have to see that in the text. There were a lot of, if Jesus knew in the upper room he was about to be betrayed, there was a million places he could have run to. But he makes it himself easy to be found. And we know but back in chapter 10, he said, nobody takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. So what you have to see in this story that Jesus is not a tragic victim Quite the opposite. He's in control of all of it. He's the good shepherd. And this is his hour, the time when he will lay down his life for his sheep. So look at verse 4 again. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, this mob of soldiers, whom do you seek? Now, it's subtle in the text, but let me try to bring this out. This is the second time John uses this phrase, went forth. Okay, the Greek verb exerkomai, it means to, to move forward into something. It, it, so first of all, in verse one, it says he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Now we see here in verse four, he went forth to what? To confront Judas. 
and to confront these soldiers. And I think John is using this verb intended to point out how Jesus is becoming the aggressor in this situation. He's intentionally moving toward this confrontation. It's what he wants. It's him showing his design resolve, his divine determination, even divine courage in literally moving towards and engaging, confronting the very men who want to put him to death. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a second. But this is, this is the second theme that we see in this passage. It's, first of all, God is, being, is sovereign over all this, but second, Jesus is now functioning as this incredibly loving and protective shepherd. Whom do you seek? Jesus asks. He moves forth. He goes forth. He moves towards them. He says, who are you looking for? And they answer him, Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I know I do this a lot. When you look, this, John gives us a very simple narrative here, right? And, and because it's so simple, it's one of the signs of its authenticity. It's not embellished in any way. But in order to understand this, you have to try to put yourself in the sandals of somebody that was there this night. This is an incredibly intense moment. This confrontation, right? Hundreds of soldiers have now arrived and they're standing there and they're looking into this, the darkness of this olive grove with their torches held high, trying to see this guy's face, right? Who is this guy who's now not only not running, but has stepped towards us and has asked the question? So you picture all these guys, right? And listen, um, law enforcement guys uh, in our church can tell you that this is, a, this is an edgy moment right? There's your target. There's your, your suspect, the guy that you've been told you've got to arrest, but he's not acting like a normal suspect. In fact, he's stepping towards you. And edgy soldiers have a tendency to get violent really quickly if they feel threatened. True? Anybody out there? Right? I, I mean, did, did, did some of them at least have one hand on their weapon? I, to be honest with you, I look at the story, I think they're a little spooked by what's going on here. The, the setting, the darkness, the torchlight, and Jesus, again, acting almost in an aggressive fashion. Who are you looking for? So he says, and by the way, if they'd been briefed about Jesus's power, I think that makes them even more edgy. If they'd, been gotten, if they'd received a mission brief, hey, this guy, this is the guy that raises people from the dead. Do not underestimate him. Verse 5, he says, I am he. We'll come back to that in a moment. But look at what John says right after that in verse 5. He says, and Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Underline that, with them. This is the last time that John mentions the betrayer, and it's an indictment. He is standing with who? The enemies of Jesus. He had chosen his side. This is a guy, this is a guy who had walked with the master for three years, had spent time in fellowship in that garden with these 11 men, but now he has chosen to stand with the world against God himself. The posture is important. I'm standing with the temple guard and with the Roman soldiers. He's standing with them. Now, again, put yourself in their sandals. We... I, we know that Jesus is sovereign over all this. We know that he knows all this is going to happen. But don't we still affirm his full humanity? We affirm his full humanity, right? So don't underestimate the feeling of betrayal that Jesus has in this moment. 
to look into the eyes of Judas and to feel that pain deep in his chest that here is my companion, one who I called a friend, one whom I shepherded, now standing with the enemies, standing with the world that are arrayed against him. Jesus is going to feel this deep in his soul. Remember, my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And Jesus looks into Judas's eyes and he feels that betrayal. And then it gets worse. The other gospel writers tell us that Judas walks up to him and calls him rabbi and kisses him on the cheek. What a wicked thing to do. Like pouring salt in an open wound. Judas, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? Jesus asks him. Ah, oh, what a moment, right? The tension in this place and the interpersonal relationship between Jesus and the betrayer, the son of perdition, right? I mean, Jesus is staring into the face of Satan's representative in this moment, right? This is, this is big. Now, in verse 6, John goes on to explain what had happened when Jesus said to the temple guard, I am he. It says, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Okay, so this is one of the greatest mysteries in all of the Gospels. What on earth happened here? Jesus speaks to them, and this huge group of soldiers is forced to step back from the force of his word, and they fall to the ground. What is going on? Well, the first thing to note here that is that in both verses 5 and 6, every major Bible translation adds the word he to Jesus' I am statement. See it there? I am he. In fact, if you have the New American Standard, you see the word he is in italics, right? And that tells you, that's their way of saying that word, that pronoun he is actually not in the original Greek text, that they're adding it for the sake of clarity. But literally, in the text, it just says, ego I me, I am, which is God's own divine name that he gave to Moses back in Exodus 3. Now, by recording Jesus' response as I am he, what the translators are trying to tell you is we as a group don't think that when Jesus said this, he was proclaiming the divine name of Yahweh. We don't think that. All he was doing was responding to the question and saying, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. But I tend to disagree because it doesn't explain the reaction, does it? If all he did was say, yep, that's the guy, I'm the guy, it doesn't explain this, this reaction. Why did these soldiers step back and fall. Why? Did, I mean, did the entire group fall? I mean, two, three hundred guys? Or did just some of them fall? Some scholars have suggested, and, and, and this could be a, a combination of dealing with both the supernatural and the practical, is that, again, on the Mount of Olives there in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a slope. And so these guys who are in the very front of this mob of soldiers, they were driven by, back by the force of Jesus' word and by the use of the divine name. And in stepping back in genuine fear, they sort of hit the guys behind them and it was like a domino effect. They knocked each other over. In other words, they got tangled up and it was just a mess. Maybe. But maybe this was a momentary flash of Jesus' glory. Kaboom. Right? And then you think about, do you remember when Paul was knocked to the ground by a flash of light from heaven? From Jesus? Is that the type of thing that took place in this moment? Did these men realize in that moment as they heard his voice that they were in the presence of someone far greater than themselves? We may never know until we get to heaven and we get to sit down with one of the disciples and say, tell me about that night. What did you see? What actually happened? Maybe we won't know. 
But we should always be careful not to remove the supernatural from the, from the plain language of Scripture, right? Because we know that there's power in Jesus' words. He created by his word, did he not? Can he not destroy by his word? So there's something to this, and, and boy, I can't wait to figure it out. Whatever the case is, again, imagine now what's going through the minds of these soldiers. Here they were. It's late at night. Like, what are we doing out here? We got sent to grab one guy, and all of this is now happening. And in the darkness and in the torchlight, they realize they're dealing with a very commanding figure. Not only is he not trying to get away, he is now speaking to them with authority. As I said, it probably spooked them. Then in verse 7, we see Jesus once again. He takes the initiative in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus again asked them, okay, remember, they're now getting up from this weird thing that they've gone through. He again says, whom do you seek? And they said, and maybe this time it was a little more humble, um, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I don't know, right? And Jesus answered, I told you that I am, he says that again, so if you seek me, let these go their way. In other words, let these men go. So here's where I think we see the purpose in Jesus taking this authoritative posture that night in the garden. By throwing the men off balance, what he's able to do is to focus all the attention on himself and away from his guys. This is what a good leader does, right? He says, no, no, focus here. Don't worry about them. I'm the problem. I'm the threat. My name is on the warrant. Look at me. The soldiers stumbling around. They get up. They regroup. And as they're doing that, it gives him time and opportunity to say, look at me and let these guys go. Now, again, Police guys can tell you, if you're sent out to grab the leader of a cult, a dangerous revolutionary, you want to scoop up all the guys that are with him, right? That makes sense. But Jesus knows something. He knows his guys aren't ready. They're not prepared spiritually to go through what he's about to go through. So he intentionally rattles these soldiers, again, so that they look at him alone. And they don't worry about arresting the others. So basically what Jesus is doing here, he is willingly surrendering. He's saying, Look here, I'm your guy, my name's on the warrant, take me. This is what verse 9 is alluding to. He did this to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you, Father, have given me, I lost not one. So this is our great shepherd putting the needs of a sheep before himself, and in doing so, this amazes me. Um, he is the one who has been betrayed, he is the one who is imminently about to be tortured and killed, and yet what's on his heart? His guys. His guys. He gives himself up in the garden in order to deliver his friends, which is the very same thing he's about to do on the cross, to give himself up for the sake of his friends. So the scene should be over at this point, right? Jesus has given himself up. Maybe there's some stability you know, maybe, maybe their things have calmed down. And I picture now, if you're one of those soldiers and, and, and your, your target is surrendering to you, you step forward to take him into custody and you start to breathe a little bit of uh, a sigh of relief. And what does Peter do? He does a very Peter thing. I mean... Jesus had, had, had settled it down. Jesus had gotten this thing under control, and he does a Peter thing. Verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, 
drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. This is what we call zeal without wisdom. Swinging your sword at one meaningless guy with hundreds of soldiers armed to the teeth behind him is just plain old stupid. <laughs> it's, it's virtue signaling. He's trying to prove a point. Remember earlier in the evening, he had said to Jesus, I will die for you. And now it looks like he's trying to prove that point, but for no good reason whatsoever. And in his panic and haste, he proves himself even to be a terrible soldier. He swings at this guy's head and misses and only catches his right ear. It's a clown show is what it is at this point. Again, as one of our military or law enforcement guys will tell you, this situation at this moment could have gone sideways so quickly because if you're a professional soldier and somebody in your eyesight, uh, 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 you know, your target's here, but somebody off the side pulls out a weapon. What are you trained to do? You're going to respond, and quickly. So for personal ego reasons, Peter puts Jesus and all of his friends at risk this night, all at risk of being slaughtered. And they could have justified it. They could have gone back to the Temple Mount and said, well, we tried to arrest him, but this guy pulled out a sword and started swinging. He put all of them at risk. So in verse 11, what does Jesus do? He reacts quickly once again to defuse the whole situation. He says, Peter, put your sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Again, authoritative. He diffuses the situation. Guys, Jesus stopped a massacre that night. That's what happened. It must have been an incredibly intense moment. And poor Peter, I mean, we all admire Peter to some extent, right? We admire his, his zeal. He just does Peter things. And he can't seem to get anything right on this night. And it's only going to get worse as the night progresses. He's going to deny the Lord three times. Yeah, we admire his commitment. But in that moment, all he was doing was resisting God's sovereign will. And at the end of the night, as Jesus surrenders himself and diffuses the situation and he puts out his wrists to be chained, what, what can we say about him? Well, we say the same thing that John said about him back in chapter 13. Listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He protected his disciples for as long as he possibly could. What's going to happen next? Those guys are going to run for their lives, and they are going to scatter into the night, and most of them are going to hide away, fearing for their lives. And you would too if you'd seen that mob of soldiers staring at you. They're going to hide away, and Jesus will drink the cup that the Father had prepared for him. And aren't you glad that he did? Because Jesus drank that cup, the, the cup of God's wrath, you and I don't have to. And so that's where we'll pick up the story next week. Let's bow our heads. I want to give you uh, a few minutes on your own to, to pray and to ask the Lord to continue to show you more truth about this story, to ask the Lord to seal these truths in your heart and your mind and give you a chance to just thank Jesus for willingly giving himself up for the sake of his sheep. Let's pray.